Hey, my name's Ed Stetzer. We're going to talk about uh, some models of church planting. But I think um, when we talk about models of church planting, it actually, oddly enough, is helpful to start with a non-model approach to church planting. And so that's what I've, I've put here uh, on the screen because I think ultimately uh, we do, there are approaches to church planting that are culture-specific, but I think we would want to look to the New Testament for church planting that's not, if that makes sense. Now, actually, people, can, people will discuss and debate um, Paul's uh, multiplication cycle. Was Paul a culturally-specific um, culturally uh, functionary as a missionary? In other words, was he planting in a Greco-Roman context with uh, kind of within the synagogue system, but more broadly beyond that. Um, and, and most most missiologists would say, no, 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 Paul's probably the model. The, the Paul's multiplication cycle is probably the model. Now, obviously, the obvious question is why Paul and not Jesus? And and partly because Jesus' um, Jesus' mission, obviously, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sin and in our place. Um, and so he might uh, open the, the, uh, the offer through, through his death, and resurrection, the gospel himself. And so, so, so then the mission task was undertaken by his disciples. And the one we have the most information about is actually Paul. Now, now this is not my, uh, I didn't make this. This is, this is, if you took, you know, 101 in missiology, this would be familiar with you. I think this variant is by David Hesselgrave, who's a good friend. We co-authored a book together, a textbook, a missiology textbook. Um, called Mission Shift, Mission Issues in the Third Millennium. Um, and so what, what, we, what we talked about here, uh, what we're talking about here is, is this, this idea, this reality that there ought to be some things that are not uh, specific to culture, but there ought to be some things that are specific to culture. In other words, there are some things that every church plant in every culture should have, and there are some things in your culture that your church plant should have. Now, you, you asked me in the break about worship leadership. Oh, was you, right? Yeah. Um, we talk about worship leadership. You're, you're, you're a worship pastor. And so the question was, well, how important should that be? Well, the answer to that question is that worship should be present in every church, in every church plant. But the, the, the importance of, of a person leading it or the person uh, or, or with instruments or, or multiple instruments or the level of quality, the expectation of such is going to be often culturally determined and shaped. So I will tell you, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. The music really matters where I live. But like, you know, our worship leaders are all like national recording artists. Um, and so, so but, it, but, but what you'd find is if you were in Romania, um, it, it matters a lot less. People just would, uh, would sit down and read some of the Psalms or engage in some of the conversations and scriptures that way. So, so what I want to start with before we got to models is to get to what's not a model. And, and that is, and I do think, let me, let me lay my cards on the table. I do think Paul is, uh, the process that Paul undertakes in the New Testament is both, um, both descriptive. In other words, the scripture um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the inerrant word of God describes what Paul did. But I think at the same time, because it is described enough, it is actually prescribed for us. And that's how we get a lot of ecclesiology. For example, do we need to have pastors? Well, you know, the Bible actually never says you have to have a pastor. It just describes over and over again that, that so-and-so appointed elders in this town or, or, or these are the qualifications of an elder, a pastor, an overseer. And so what comes to it was described enough 
that we've come to the conclusion now it is prescribed. Uh, the ordinances of the church or the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, are described enough that we now come to the conclusion that they're prescribed. They should be normative in the life of every church, whether you're among the Ebon in Malaysia, you're among Spaniards uh, or Catalonians in Barcelona. Uh, so, so Barcelona. So, what happens is, is that this picture becomes universal. And what I want to say to you is, I think that what is described in the New Testament, as Paul is about this multiplication, is actually helpful for us to consider prescribed in every time and every place. So, let's walk through those things. Um, it starts with number one is believers are sent to multiply. Now we see this throughout the scriptures. How will they hear without a preacher? And the preacher there is not referring to the preacher like I would be or like many of you would be, but the proclaimer of the gospel. Whenever there's a church plant, somebody goes to plant that church. Now, over time, that has changed. If you go back 50 years ago, it was generally groups of people. So probably somewhere along in the history of this uh, M M MBM Rudy Hill, did I get that right, MBM Rudy Hill? Uh, this is an Anglican church, if I, if I recall. Is that right? Someone, okay. okay, so probably when the parishes uh, multiplied, uh, some group of people, not always, but some group of people was sent out and they started a new congregation here. Now over time that has changed and morphed to now it's more an entrepreneurial endeavor. In, in, uh, in, in times past, it was groups that would go establish new congregations. The kind of the new order that has emerged, it tends to be entrepreneurial church planters who are sent out by somebody. Now, some would say, well, they should be teams that are sent out. And, and they can look to the Pauline model for this. Paul consistently goes out with other people. As a matter of fact, when Paul planted a church, there is this written and sometimes unwritten and then later written expectation that the churches that he planted would send people to partner with him to plant subsequent churches. But again, I don't know that the specifics of that, the Onesimus here or the Timothy here or the John Mark here, I don't know that those are intended to be uh, normative. I think individuals can plant a church. I think churches can send out people to plant churches. I think teams can be a part of church planting. Think of uh, historically uh, Augustine of Canterbury who would, who would uh, be, be, be evangelized what would later become the UK and would take a group of people who would go and they went uh, as a community of people, and, and that community itself both uh, showed forth what it looked like to live in community, but then evangelized the surrounding countryside. In the New Testament, we see people like Stephen, who's, who's going by himself, at least to our knowledge. We don't see people with him. We see Paul and his band of people. We see this both historically and biblically. So, universally and universally applicable would be that believers are sent out and that's a multiplication process. Now let me just say, no one's raised their hand and I, and I, and I want to tell you before you necessarily do, I want to present this and then I want to open it up for Q&A because someone might want to say, well, hold on. So hold those questions and no one's raised their hand yet, but hold those questions if you have them. Uh, but but I'm, I'm, I'm holding forth the proposal that this Pauline multiplication cycle is descriptive and prescriptive and should be universal. So believers are sent out, and then the gospel is proclaimed. Now, this is key. Now, I was speaking once at a, um, a, a again, the term we use in, in, in my country is mainline Protestant. The term you use, tend to use here is liberal Protestant. Uh, we don't tend to use the term liberal because uh, we, we tend to identify people as they identify themselves, and they call themselves mainline Protestants. And I, I, I remember they asked me to speak. They gave me four hours to speak on the gospel, the mission, um, 
And, and ultimately, they wanted to ask questions about church planning. And so I spent four hours. It was wonderful experienced and, and people were taking notes and it was great to just go through and to be able to share the gospel. Um, but one of the first questions was, uh, they call me Dr. Stetzer. Uh, and you, you don't, I'm not, you shouldn't. Um, I know it's a different culture here. Um, you know, don't call me Dr. Stetzer, but don't do what you all do and shorten my name to like Edo or Eddie. Um, I was called Eddie when I was seven. And so I'm kind of over that now. Um, but, but they said, Dr. Stetzer, um, how can we get our people to, uh, to reach out and start new churches if we don't believe that Jesus is the only way. Um, and it was kind of this awkward moment. Uh, but we had been there four hours together, and I'd been walking through um, what, what I would teach here, um, but actually starting back a lot uh, further, talking about the gospel and why it matters and dead in our trespasses and sins. And not everyone was obviously tracking with me, but they knew what I believed when they invited me. And so I said, we, I joke, I'm kind of a, I joke a lot when I present. And so what I said is, I said, you know, I, I, I smiled and said, you know, here's what I would say. You should repent because Jesus is the only way. And there was this awkward laughter that kind of went throughout the room. And, and he said, well, okay, then what do I do after that? And, 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 and I said, well, then you preach the gospel that we've been sort of, you know, explaining and describing. Um, here's what I would say. I would say a lot of liberal Protestants and other groups right now are sort of panicking because their denominations are dying, and they think that the answer is to start more congregations. And it probably is, though not maybe the way they expect. Matter of fact, if your denomination or your network is not planting about 3%, in the number of churches compared to your churches as a whole. So if you have 100 churches, you need to plant at least three just to keep up with attrition and, and, uh, or else you begin to experience uh, rapid and then ongoing decline. Um, but ultimately, here's the thing I want you to miss. You, you really, you can't plant churches without preaching the gospel. Because, and this is not news to you. Because the gospel, um, the working of the Spirit makes disciples and only disciples can ultimately be part of churches. So that leads to, right, believers sent out to multiply. The gospel is proclaimed. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And then unbelievers are regenerated. Now, here's where some of the problem begins to come in, is that uh, much of church planting in Australia and throughout the West is really the reshuffling of believers. And so what happens is, is believers are sent to multiply. They don't really multiply. They don't preach the gospel. They invite their other Christian friends, and then they get together, and they get in a church that's kind of cooler or better or whatever than the church that they have. It's got better whatever, music, or it's more liturgical or less liturgical. It's more reformed or more Pentecostal, whatever it is that people desire or people are looking for. And so what happens is you don't end up with a multiplication cycle. You end up with a sheep shifting cycle. Now, don't say that fast. But you end up with a sheep shifting cycle. Um, so, but the biblical process, I believe, is believers are sent to multiply. The gospel is proclaimed. Unbelievers are regenerated. The gospel is contextualized, and this is where, um, uh, and again, people want to be cautious about what does it mean the gospel is contextualized. We're using that in the sense that evangelicals use it. Roman Catholics use that term differently. Other people use that term differently. But contextualization is not making the gospel palatable. It is making the gospel understandable. Again, let me say it again. It's not making the gospel palatable. It's making the gospel, if you will, comprehensible or understandable, not 
not putting unnecessary barriers or unnecessary confusion on what the gospel actually is. And so what happens is the gospel takes root. Um, now, now here's, here's where contextualization really matters because the, the approach you use to church planting should include all of the six elements of the church multiplication cycle, but where you are will impact how you plant. Let me say it again. Where you are will impact how you plant. If it doesn't, what you're probably doing is exporting a contextualized model of church, not the gospel having taken root in this time and in this place and in this context. Now, missiologists have a word. They stole it from from agriculture. And that word is indigenous. The gospel is contextualized so that the church might become indigenous. Now, indigenous, well, you know, even here, you know, I, I, I um, you know, brought my daughter and she loves animals. She's, she loves them. And um, so, so, of course, you know, I mean, it seems normal to you, but we're, you know, we're fascinated by the concept that there are kangaroos running wild around your, your world. I mean, how can this be? I mean, it's like, nothing we've ever seen. It's like Jurassic Park to us. Marsupials and pouches and joeys. It's, it's just unbelievable to, to us. Now, why? Because kangaroos, um, is the plural of kangaroos kangaroos or kangaroo? Kangaroos with an S? Okay, because the plural of deer is not deers, and so it confuses me. But, um, but if you're, if you're, if you, you know that kangaroos are indigenous to Australia, but they're not indigenous to anywhere else. Um, now, now, do you grow, do you grow oranges in Australia? You do. Okay. Um, oranges are not indigenous to Australia. Matter of fact, where are, anybody know where are oranges indigenous to originally? Where? St. Mary? South America? No, good. It's a good guess. Most oranges today are grown in South America, particularly Brazil, but there were no oranges in South America a thousand years ago. Anybody? Nope, there were no oranges in Spain a thousand years ago. China is correct, which is, by the way, where we get the Mandarin orange. All citrus of that variety is originally indigenous to China. But don't miss what happened. Spain... And South America, do you know why? Because you now think, rightfully so, I mean, they are in a sense, Florida, you could say, they have become naturally, they have become indigenous to those places. Now, you can't grow oranges in uh, Greenland, okay? Why? They won't grow there. They won't take root there. They won't, they won't be able to sus- be sustained there. Now, so, so missiologists, particularly a couple of guys named Henry Venn and Rufus Anderson, missiologists started taking this language and saying, that's what the gospel is supposed to be. Because really the gospel is initially indigenous only to this cultural milieu that existed in this place called Israel, which not was just Israel, but was this Hellenistic Jewish milieu. And this is where the gospel ultimately was indigenous, but the gospel has become indigenous in a lot of other places. 
that's the process that the Pauline cycle includes. The, the, the unbelievers are regenerated. The gospel is now contextualized, sought to be engaged. Some might say live out the gospel, and I might even say that. Don't be a, you know, I, actually we live out the implications of the gospel, but, but ultimately when missiologists talk about it, they talk about the gospel being rooted into a culture such that it grows, lives, thrives, and in some ways actually looks like the culture from which it comes. Now, not, not in the sense that, 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 that it loses its unique kerygma, the unique content that the gospel is, but the gospel then ultimately is contextualized. Now, here's where, I mean, everything up to this point, everyone would say, believers are sent to multiply, amen. Gospel proclaimed, amen. Uh, unbelievers regenerated, amen. When we get to four is where people start getting a little feisty. Because your contextualization is another one's compromise. Matter of fact, all of us think that our churches are perfectly contextualized for the context where we are. Now, um, and what we think is that those to the right of us are legalists and those to the left of us are liberals. But the perfect balance of gospel contextualization has been found in me. Amen? Yeah, exactly. And so... So, you know, Mikey from Tasmania. Yeah, exactly. Tasmanians, they just... Huh, what? Um, you know, I mean, the nose ring, right? And, the, and the, the hipster approach. How old are you, Mikey? 33. I got shoes your age. Um, you know, I got to tell you, um, there's a lot of people. Mikey's a, you know, he's a Bible thumper, you know, like, like most of us are going to be here. We're kind of, we share theological belief about Scripture, et cetera, et cetera. But I got to tell you, a guy like him, there's a whole lot of people who share some theological presuppositions, and one, two, and three would say, something wrong with that guy. Amen? There you go. There you go. <laughs> they were quick to jump right in there, Mikey. And I think it might have been just the Tasmanian thing. I don't really know. Uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, but, 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 but again, this is where it gets to be, to be tricky is at gospel contextualization. This is where it also requires some, some humility because people make decisions and choices that might go uh, further than we would go. Um, and we might ask why, what's their motivation? Is the gospel still being proclaimed even as they may look and engage differently than we do? But here's where, in just a few minutes we're gonna get to, is this is where models begin to take shape. Models begin to take shape when the gospel is being contextualized and multiplying churches are being formed. And thus, don't you miss this, a biblically faithful church in Sydney should look different than a biblically faithful church in Senegal, should look different than a biblically faithful church in Seattle, and certainly than one in Selma, Alabama. Um, but this is where people will, will struggle. But what happens is um, the universal truth includes individual contextualization. Let me say it again. The universal truth, this mission truth here that I'm laying out for you, includes always individual contextualization within a community and within a context. That's where models come in. So, so and here's the thing where I would really encourage you to, again, hold your models loosely and your Jesus firmly. Hold your 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 mission engagement practices loosely and your marks of a biblical church firmly 
But if your marks of a biblical church can only be achieved in your culture, you're doing it wrong. And here's the test that I give, because I I often work with groups who are conservative like me, uh, but at the same time we're trying to figure out how do we engage the culture and the context where we find ourselves. And here's what I say to them. Um, Would you demand this among the Pocot in Africa and among the Quechua in the highlands of Peru? If it's not universally true, you should not make it a universal requirement for church. Does that make sense? If it's not universally true, you should not make it a universal requirement for church. So that gives us, missiologically, flexibility in the engagement of gospel contextualization and ultimately in the multiplication of churches that are to come. So this universal, appropriate principle-driven missiology is then lived out in different settings. So people say to me, is it okay to, is it okay to plant house churches uh, among high-rises in Melbourne? And I say, praise God, how could I not say that that's appropriate? As long as it has the marks of a biblical church, as long as it's culturally appropriate in its context, as long as it's following this kind of cycle. Gospel contextualized, multiplying churches formed, leaders matured and discipled. We spent some time talking about that. Leaders matured and discipled, and then ultimately, well, believers sent to multiply. Now, notice it's supposed to be a cycle. Do you, do you, do you use the words, uh, the, the words cul-de-sac? Does that have meaning? Okay. Um, you never know how far the French words actually go. Uh, Uh, The problem is, a lot of churches have become a cul-de-sac on the Great Commission Highway. Um, They have become this this end point. So so the gospel came to them through, well, through through all kinds of journey and process and contextualization and recontextualization and gospel proclamation and new churches planted. And then it it goes from this highway and this off-ramp and these roads and then it goes all the way down and then boom, well, mine's a cul-de-sac. So it is a cycle, a Pauline cycle, that matters for us to continue uh, to, to continue uh, as we plant churches. Now, let me say this. What I want to talk about, though, is I want to focus in on four and five. Again, that's my assigned task. Again, I would remind you, I believe more than contextualization and models in church planning, but I believe in contextualization and, and models in church planning. And I would phrase it this way. The how of church planting is in many ways determined by the who, when, and where of culture. Let me say it again so we don't miss it. The how of church planting is in many ways determined by the who, when, and where of culture. Now at this point, you can choose to say, oh, I've seen so many abuses in that, therefore I... I just can't do it. And I actually, I, I get that. Um, in the history of, more, of global missions, we have more mistakes than we have successes when it comes to contextualization. Um, I can show you vast swaths of churches that have been planted bereft of the gospel um, in the name of contextualization. So I'm not naive but nor should you be if you think that not contextualizing the gospel is an option. Because you're already 
swimming in water of which you are not aware. Like the fish. The fish looks out and perhaps is unaware that she is or he is um, inside the fishbowl. We are in a culture. We're shaped by that culture. And that culture both impacts who we are and what we do when it comes to uh, ministry and mission and church. And what I want to do is I want to talk some uh, about that. Um, let, let's, let, we'll kind of walk through this. Now, um, I, I, earlier I met with some of the coaches, and I see a couple of you here. I, did, I didn't realize that there were going to be overlap. But let me just quick, quickly mention some of the things that I, I drew out of in that seminar, and I'll quickly draw, draw through them. Um, when we talk about um, supporting planters, what we've seen is a shift over the last two decades, three decades, from church planter systems to support planters who would then, rather than church planting systems, where churches would start churches, now we talk more about individuals who plant churches. I think that's a rightful shift. Um, we've seen now standard systems develop. And, and can I, let me just take a moment to speak into and to affirm um, Geneva Push, um, which in case you don't know, which I assume all of you know, has to do with rather an obscure historical reference to what happened at Geneva that became a gathering place and a school of sorts um, where people were, were provoked to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24, it's sent out particularly to France and elsewhere. It's not necessarily a, a push of Geneva, but it's what Geneva did by um, pushing out the gospel in the uh, Reformation. And, but let me just say that um, when I look to the different contexts around the world, and my job, again, is to kind of look at the Western context, um, there are few places that I would say have thought through and deployed a system as well as Geneva Push has. Um, and so your endorsement may matter, my endorsement may matter nothing to you, uh, but this is sort of my field. I... I, I um, I wrote my PhD dissertation on the development of church planting systems, looking at them historically and their efficacious application among 600 church planters, looking at a four-year time cycle. So, so I, I, I appreciate the effort that Geneva Push has put into, um, well, developing systems that produce planters. Um, so the standard systems then kind of flow out of there. In a recent research project that we undertook talking to coaches and to church planters, we asked them to say to us what were the top issues they consistently faced. And, and there were actually seven that came up over and uh, over again. And so if you're, I saw a couple of you take pictures of that. Again, I don't mind taking pictures of this. I'm also happy to give you all of the PowerPoints that I present. I'll do that through Scott Sanders so you can have all of them. Um, make it easier for you. I want to serve you and encourage you. But also, this top issues planners face, um, I've blogged on at about 2,000 words under each of these seven points. And if you just go to edstetzer.com and just Google, or just Google in general, top issues planners face, I think it's the number one hit that'll show up. Just put my name if not. Um, and so when we looked at some of these, these top issues that planners face, I wanted you to uh, take a moment and notice how most of them are impacted by the model of church planting that you have engaged in. 
So in other words, um, let's take a look at the third one, launch team development and mobilizing volunteers. What, is, what do those words even mean? Well, launch team is that which you build up beforehand so you can begin or launch out with a new church. Well, that assumes a model. Um, most of you, well, let me, let, let's, let's do a poll here. Um, how many of you were meeting in some fashion, Bible studies, small groups, cultivative studies, whatever it may be, and then at some point you had already been meeting, but at some point you began a public worship service and invited people to it? How many of you, that's sort of the way you've done it? Okay, all right, most of you. Upon what basis did you do that? I mean, that order, where is that in Scripture? It's not. See, what you've done is you exercised a model. Okay, here's what, um, what probably we could draw from, from Scripture. I mean, they didn't have, like, meetings and then announce their meeting publicly on Sunday morning. They just, the gospel was preached, households were baptized, and they started meeting on the Lord's Day what they did. So we have developed the majority of you, by the way, that's, that's what I've done in uh, all but one church that I've planted, is that's what I've done. Now, why have we done that? Now, I don't know why you've done that, but let me explain why generally we do that. Why not, um, when the first people who came to Christ, when Bruce and Beth, um, I had the privilege of baptizing them, I discipled them, they were a small group in my home. Um, so Bruce and Beth, Jimmy and Robin, and Ed and Donna are the six adults that are, let's say, hypothetically at the beginning of Grace Church. Why don't we just start having Sunday morning worship then? Why? Here's the answer. The only answer you can really come up with is a cultural one. And the reason is it was better in our model, in our strategy, in our contextualized approach to planning a church to announce and to, if I might be so blunt, to make a big deal about the fact that we are now going public and people can come. Because we had all the factors of a church. We had the Lord's Supper. We were engaging in baptism. We did all of those things. And you can or you might, you might not, depending upon your policy. So, so this is a model-specific issue. Let's take a look at financial um, self-sufficiency. Um, how many of you here are full-time in vocational ministry? Raise your hand for just a second. Oh, a whole bunch of you. A whole bunch of you. Which I guess makes sense because we're, we're meeting midweek. Um, by the way, the majority of pastors in the world are not. The majority of pastors in the world are uh, what we call bivocational, though they don't use that word. They just say that I'm a carpenter and then I plant a church on the weekend. Carpenter probably shouldn't be used the example that I use because we think of another carpenter. Uh, I'm a plumber because, um, and then on the weekend I'm a, I'm a pastor. Again, um, is that a biblically mandated thing? No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, we see a mix. Uh, you know, those who, you know, um, work in the gospel, should make their living in the gospel, but Paul also does this and goes back and forth. But the financial self-sufficiency and viability that's necessary for us actually is going to be culturally determined by what we need, how these things work. The system, these are all based on the model of church planting that you, not all, many are based on the model of church planting that you use. So I'm actually not going to go through all seven Though I would invite you, and hopefully that it ministers to you, the, the list that I actually made um, and went and blogged through these things here. So with that being said, I, I really want, my desire is, is to um, make us think about the cultural presuppositions 
that undergird what we do, my desire is to make us charitable towards those who may be engaging in different ways, same marks of a biblical church, different contextualized approaches. And I just want us to, and I want to talk about it, I want us to think, hmm. Matter of fact, let me give you some pictures that might make you go, hmm, just notice. Hmm. Some signs from America I wanted to share with you. Some of you are like, I don't get it. You look more closely. Just things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> Sometimes we're not the brightest blokes in the uh, United States. Um, it's like, so. So, um, I don't know if that means the same thing here as it does there, but either way, it doesn't mean what they think it means on the. I want you to ask, well, hmm. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to spend a few minutes, and then really I'd just like to dialogue a bit um, with you. Um, the, the, uh, some different approaches I want to kind of put before you. Uh, four primary approaches I want to put before you. Um, I don't actually know why there's that copyright at the bottom because this isn't from anything I wrote in 2006. It's kind of, oh, I know why, because it carried over from the pictures. The pictures are something I used for a presentation I did years ago. Um, I want to talk about some of the... Uh, the four, what we're seeing common and growing in frequency, uh, for some of them, but still most common um, among in the West. Now, I'll be teaching on the first two uh, at, uh, at Oxford in 2015. We're doing a study uh, about alternative ecclesial communities. What in the world is that? In other words, churches that don't look like what we have generally seen as churches in the West. Now, the question now, of course, all, and I, I totally get it. I mean, well, is it really church? Here's, here's my standard. My standard is, does it hold the marks of a biblical church? So that's my standard of whether or not it's, it's church. Um, and I hope that you would agree with me. In fact, if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Um, I mean, it's just not, it's not wiggle room on this, that, that house churches, for example, can meet the definition of church. Because we have to believe that because, you know, Clement writes to the house churches scattered about Rome and they're meeting in homes and some of enlarged homes and, they, and they, had, they had pastor elders who were appointed and served and they functioned and they just were. And so, they're, they're, but, but, but again, we're not accustomed to those things. So, so these things require us to perhaps stretch a bit on our understanding of what a, um, what a church is. Now, I want to encourage you, this is not on your, not on your, page, but I want you to write down three things that may help with this. If you're taking notes, you don't have to write this down, but if you're taking notes, uh, one is that this is going to be shaped by our Christology. Um, Ask the question, who is Jesus and what has he sent us to do? This is shaped, it shapes our Christology. In other words, there is a sentness. Now, this is where I would normally want to break open a Bible and teach and preach, but that is, Andrew Hurd's doing just fine taking care of that here. Um, but here's, 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 what this, here's what this is. In John 20, 21, after 40 times in the Gospel of John indicating that he is sent over and over again, at the end of the Gospel of John, he said, you know, John 14, the Father sent me, and the Spirit's been sent in my name, and 40 times I've been sent. He then says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. There's a sentness, we call that the uh, 
missional focus of the church. But ultimately, mission is just the Latin word for apostolos. It just means that those who are sent. So there's a sentness that we must embrace. Why? Because, because and we don't want to miss this, right? It's, a mission is not a compartment of the church. Mission's not a function of the church. The church doesn't have a mission, but God's mission has a church. And so if God's mission has a church, that's not unique to me. It's not, it goes back actually a longer time than some of the more recent quotations of it. But if God's mission has a church, we're ultimately identifying God has sent Jesus, Jesus has sent us into a culture to then therefore see a church that reaches this culture, but to some degree is also shaped by that culture. So here's the thing I want to challenge you on, even before we get much farther than this, on the, on the Christology question. Does your Christology cause you to love the people to whom you are sent because the sentness that Jesus identifies, he comes and identifies with a hurting and lost world. And then Alte in the original language is there. It says in the same way, not for the same purpose. Didn't, Jesus didn't send you to die on the cross for the sins of men and women. But in the same way, Alte, in the same way, we are sent. And so, therefore, our Christology causes us, in other words, the very Jesus that we worship causes us to care for those for he came for whom he came and died so the how of church planning is going to be shaped by the who when and where of culture because jesus sends us to them so there's the christology question that leads to the to the missiology question uh, what strategies and approaches should we use in the context where we find ourselves what strategies and approaches should we use in the context where we find ourselves I'm guessing that you don't do crusades here. Um, do you do? Anyone done that? Was it? Against kangaroos at West. That's, that's uh, crusades. I like that. Um, now, we look at crusades, these big meetings, and we say, let's all invite people down to Sydney Stadium. Is there a Sydney Stadium? Surely there's a Sydney Stadium. And let's, let's have... Let's have, let's have um, an evangelistic meeting there. We'll all bring our lost friends. And, and all of you sort of get, you get a little smarmy. Smarmy is a word in America. And you sort of say, oh, that's just Americas. That's Americans. That's silly. Uh, let me just say, in most places in America, it is silly. Um, but it's not silly in most places in Africa. And one of the things that we would find is, is I've actually done that. I've actually, um, we showed a Jesus film in a village of Apatrapa outside of Kumasi in the native language, Chui. And we showed the Jesus film. And then um, we were the only electricity in the village at the time. We brought our own generator. So people came to the Jesus film. And then I, I got up and preached afterwards. And hun- hundreds of people showed up for this, for this meeting. And I preached the gospel and, and through a translator. And, 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 and certainly wasn't anything about my preaching. But, but men and women heard the gospel and responded. So I don't want you to miss this. If you, if you hear the words of Jesus... It's easy to kind of be schmarmy about somebody else's approach, but ultimately the question we want to ask is, here's the gospel. Jesus says, if the Father sent me, so send I you. If we're sent, what missiological strategies will we use? I will tell you, um, crusades are, if, if you will, probably, though, though I do know that there's sometimes the high watermark of Christianity, some have said, in, 
in Australia was related to some crusades years ago. Um, but what I would say is that probably that era has passed. So what then is God um, using today? Um, and, and what are the missiological strategies that we want to use? I would say this. I, I would say, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that people are using street preaching effectively too much. If God calls you to do that, go for it. Uh, just don't yell at me when I'm walking past you, but by and large, if God calls you to do that, great. Um, I think people should be obedient to the prompting of God in their lives. Uh, tract evangelism may have lost some of its luster when I would say it was more effective in years past. So what seems to be now? Well, I, probably, um, maybe you could say more about Australia, but let me talk about the Western context as a whole. What really has engaged a lot of people that I would affirm as a missiological strategy is dialogical, community-based question and answer kinds of Bible studies where people can be honest about their doubts and yet they're led into a conversation about spiritual issues. We see that in uh, that approach in things like Christianity Explored. Uh, we see that in the uh, most widely used ones, actually Alpha. Um, we see that in, um, um, what's, the, what's the Matthias Media one? Was it? Is it two ways to live? Is that the small group curriculum? I use, I love the Matthias Media, um, simple Christianity. Okay, um, so, so those kinds of ideas have seemed to have some missiological resonance with the culture we find ourselves. Okay, so Christology, who is Jesus and what does he send us to do? Missiology, you know, what, what approaches are we going to take within the context to evangelize those universal principles? And then lastly, we come to the ecclesiology question. Now, here's the thing. Um, people have a high or a low or ecclesiology or somewhere in the middle. Um, I guess probably, I don't know, I'm perfectly in the middle. Everyone thinks that, right? Um, what I would say is this. Here's the question I would ask. I believe that there are marks of a biblical church that should be universally present in everything. So these would be things that we don't have church if we don't have these things. So what I would say is this. There are expressions that rest on top of the universal elements that must be present. And here's what I would say. Uh, what expression of a New Testament church would be most appropriate in this context? What expression of a New Testament church would be most appropriate in this context? That's the ecclesiology question. So the New Testament church is a universally applicable thing. So you might believe a little differently. For example, in my people, we would believe in, uh, you know, believers' baptism following conversion would be the mark. If you're a Presbyterian or Anglican, you might hold that differently. And so let's put that aside. You should have, as a matter of fact, you shouldn't be planting a church if you don't have clarity on your ecclesiology. That's a really bad place to try things out. Um, matter of fact, shifting ecclesiology can be very demoralizing to your people. Say, well, you know, we started out and we were, you know, we wanted to have elders and we changed our mind. We wanted to do this way or we wanted to be ruled by this or president or whatever. You need, you need to have clarity of your ecclesiology. But then that's your, this is, this is the, what we see as the New Testament required. And on top of that sits what expression of a New Testament church would be most appropriate in this context. Now, um, with this, I call this the missional matrix. It's, it's something I wrote in Breaking the Missional Code years ago. With that being said, here's then the question that I want to ask, okay? Now, I don't, um, I don't know Australia, okay? But I might ask the question, all right, I'm going to Gold Coast, okay? Who is Jesus? What has he called us to do? Well, he's Jesus. He comes. We have the gospel. He sends us. He sends us to Gold Coast. I need to love these people as Jesus 
loved these people. I need to ask questions about these people and where they are and the way they live and the way that they think so I can ask the missiological question. The missiological questions might talk about how I reach out and how I build relationships, but then they also impact the ecclesiology questions, and I might end up on the beaches of the Gold Coast in a high-rise community having come to the conclusion that the church I plant does not look like the church from which I come. Let me show you a little thing that that might help with this. I, I sometimes would have students come to me back when I was running this church planning program, and they would say, Dr. Stetzer, um, uh, I want to plant a church. And I would say to them, well, what kind of church do you want to plant? And it was sort of a trick question because they would say, man, I want to plant a contemporary, purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, moderately reformed, cell-based church. That's a lot of words, man. And then someone else would say, I want to plan a missional, incarnational community of Christ followers sent on a mission of societal transformation church. Depends on what conference you went to is how you answer all those long descriptor questions. But, and some of those are theological, and theological are going to be of a different category. But here's what I would say to them. When they would answer, well, I want to plant, you know, a contemporary seeker church. Um, and again, Put aside for just a moment. Well, I don't like this or that about seekers. I get it. I want to plant a contemporary cell-based church. I don't think we generally object to that. There's no theological baggage that comes with that. What I would often say to them is, how do you know the kind of church you want to plant if you haven't met the people that God sent you to to plant among? And that's my encouragement for you to consider is don't fall in love with the model. Fall in love with the mission. I mean, I guess it's okay to fall in love with the model. Um... I did. Her name is Donna. But, um, but don't fall in love with the model of church. Fall in love with the mission that then ultimately will produce um, an expression of church that's New Testament, but also with certain expressions in the context where uh, you find yourself. So, so, so again, so let me talk about a few of these things that I think are, are emerging. Can we use the term emerging? I use it as a gerund, not as a noun, if that means anything to you. I'm not talking about the emerging church. I'm talking about models of ministry that are emerging. Um, One, I would say, is a uh, missional incarnational model that has moved away from the large launch methodology, and large launch is is a relative term. Uh, By the way, I think there's an impression that some of you may have. I'm going to talk some about this tomorrow that churches, church plants in the United States are much, much larger than church plants in Australia. Um, the typical church plant in the United States doesn't pass 100 in attendance after its fourth year. Typical church plant in the United States is running about 78, 79 on its fourth year. Um, and so don't think that that's normal. So when I talk about church planting, when I talk about normal church planting, it Certainly, that's probably bigger than the typical church plant in Australia. I don't know. We haven't done a survivability and health study. We'd like to. We may do that. Um, But um, I think what happens is sometimes, you know, I was speaking at this, uh, I was speaking at this conference, this Saddleback conference, on, uh, and it was there were nine of us who were the who were the speakers. Nine of us were the keynote speakers, and and all of them had this. All of us had been. Every single one had planted a church, but the other eight of them had all planted churches that were like. 10,000 and 9,000 and 18,000 and and then there was me and it was like it was like um it's like one of these things is not like the other that's a little nursery rhyme we had to do um and so so I got up and you know it was Rick Warren Andy Stanley I don't know who these all these people were 
um, Carrie Shook, um, you know, good people. I preach for some of them. And so I, I, I get up and it's my turn to speak. And, and there's, you know, a few thousand people in the room. And I, I sort of caution that around the world, and people come around the world to these conferences, some from Australia. And I, I cautioned them, and I said, and I just kind of, it kind of struck me, and I think I probably said something I shouldn't have said. Warren's sitting, you know, right there, you know, smiling. He always smiles. Um, and that's one of the things people love about him. And, and so, so I, I got up and said, I said, now listen. I apologize. This mic is driving me nuts. It's just not sitting correctly, so I apologize. I just want to pull this and be done with this. Um, so, because the guy in the back didn't tape it on. I insisted on doing it myself, and so I've learned my lesson. You can do it next time. Um, so anyway, so, so I'm sitting there, and I, I see all these people. I got, like, from Japan. There's a contingent from Japan. At the beginning of the last century, Japan was about 4 to 5% Christian. At the end of the last century, you know, 13 years ago, Japan was 1% Christian. A megachurch in Japan is passing 60 or 70 or 80. And, and, and so here it is, right? You've got Andy Stanley with 30,000 people and Perry Noble with 15,000 people and Kerry Shook with 18,000 people. And so now it's my turn. And so, so I get up and I say, listen, I say, I, I say don't, don't be fooled or something like that. I, I try to be nice. Remember, I'm, you know, I never, you know, I'm right here. I'm, I'm on the platform that they, they're inviting all these people to. And I say, listen, don't be fooled. This is not normal. And I, I talked about Saddleback. I said, you know, some of you have been to a Saddleback conference. Anybody been to a Saddleback conference here? Yeah, several of you have been to a Saddleback conference. Here's the thing. It's not, you, you get, you turn off of the road to get onto the Saddleback property on a six-lane road. And then you drive up the property and there's a traffic light at the corner of Purpose Drive and Saddleback Way. I mean, it's crazy, right? And so I... So, and yet they've been hearing all these speakers and these Japanese church planners and the Australian church planners. And I said, I said, don't, don't, don't fall in love with this. Don't aspire to this. Don't, don't think this is what you're going to get or what you're going to have. Matter of fact, I cautioned them. I said, this can be for you. This can be, I said, this can be ministry pornography. And everyone got silent. And I said, this could be ministry pornography, an, an unrealistic depiction of an experience you're never going to have that distracts you from the real and glorious thing. And everyone looked at Rick Warren to make sure it was okay that I said that on his stage. And he smiled and nodded and everyone laughed and said thank you. Um, you always got to make sure it's a cultural thing. Make sure the chief is okay with what's said. It was fun watching several of you last night when I was speaking. You kept looking at certain people in the room to make sure they were okay with what I was saying. Now, uh -huh, weren't you? Uh -huh, thank you very much. Um, but here's the thing. Church planning doesn't look like that. That's what people who write books say church planning was. You know why? Because that's who we ask to write the books. We don't say, hey, man, it took you 10 years to get to 100. Could you write a book about how awesome that was? <laughs> right? So what happens over time is, um, and here's what, I, here's what I would say. A lot of times people go to a conference and they hear, um, I mean, even, even Andrew Hurd's, amazing and implausible story that just how God has used him in the planning of, of, of this church. It's really become, I mean, I, 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 you know, I learned, I wanted to learn about the different people or the directors of Gene Push. I'm just like, wow. I mean, in an Australian context, amazing. But what he would say is that's probably not what it's going to look like. And don't get in that in your head. Because here's what, here's what happens. I, what I found is 
is, and just notice even Andrew's just pushing us back to the scriptures, pushing us back to Jesus. Here's, here's the thing I want you not to miss, okay? Um, too many church planters plant a church in their head because they read a book or they go to a conference. Too many church planters plant a book in their head, not in their community. So you can learn those things, but you've got to actually go into those things. And what I would say to you, some of you need to plant churches perhaps different than the ones that you've inherited. Same theological foundation, but different missiological application. And that's going to impact their ecclesiological structure. Not your marks. Those are universal and those are required, but your expression of such. So let me give you four quick things. Um, and then I'll open up for questions and dialogue and disagreement, whatever. Um, First is a term that is a dual term, missional incarnational church planning. A couple of things about it. I'll just explain these things briefly. Uh, this is a generally a move away from the methodology that most of you used when you raised your hand. Where I said, how many of you, you know, had a private worship before you went public? Here's what this tends to be. This tends to be uh, churches that tend to be smaller, tend to be uh, intentionally build communities of mission. So sometimes there'll be 20, 40, 60, 80, uh, maybe, maybe 80s on the high end. They tend to stay in that size. They tend to be deeply rooted in a community, often identified with a single neighborhood of which they serve, live among, seek to preach the gospel to, and to model out its implications among. This is not dissimilar to, as I mentioned earlier, people like Augustine of uh, Canterbury. Um, who, or, or what we find is the, the, uh, the, the, the Irish who uh, saved civilization. Didn't we have an Irishman here earlier? There you are, my friend. You know the greatest book ever written, How the Irish Saved Civilization, don't you? You haven't read How the Irish Saved Civilization? Thomas called it, oh, sweet mother of pearl. Son, your Irish card is revoked. Uh, um, but after Europe fell to the, uh, to the Vandals and others, uh, these tribes, um, they were re-evangelized by groups of people that came out of Ireland um, who also preserved the literature of the day, but they were re-evangelized, and Europe was re-engaged by... And here's the thing. They came in groups. They lived in communities. They impacted small communities at that time. They didn't have regional visions. That wasn't what God called them to do. Um, you wouldn't know these communities, but God called them to inhabit to live on incarnationally, if you want to debate that word, I'm using it in the sense of the mission, not you can't be incarnational like Jesus was. You're not the incarnation. But they would live incarnationally among little five points uh, in, 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 in this community. And, and, and what would happen is, is they, they wouldn't strive for necessarily excellence or, or, or great regional influence. They just people who want to live for Jesus among this community, among these people. And just it starts with two people and four people and six people. And I will tell you, here's the thing. If you're going to do that model, you've got to have a different model of funding. And that's probably not a full-time model of funding. That's probably a bivocational model of funding. It's someone who says, I am going to love this emerging arts community. I'm going to live here. I'm going to pastor here. I'm going to share the gospel here. We're going to plant a church here. We might plant another church. But ultimately, this is our neighborhood. Listen, you can live in a neighborhood and not be a neighbor. Missional incarnational churches are deeply concerned about engaging their community and those communities tend to be smaller because they can be engaged again incarnationally that's relationally whereas some of the means that you probably used basically you raise your hand like I used I used um, mass mass is the wrong word larger forms of outreach reach out to the community through through flyers through zines through whatever else it, it may be um, so if you want to read more uh, about that uh, you might find Hugh Halter and Matt Smay's work to be helpful on this, uh, both Tangible Kingdom, 
or the book And, uh, and both missional and attractional. I wrote the foreword to the book And. Some of you might be familiar with that. Um, that might be a helpful uh, resource. Is it just me or do I hear a lawnmower? See, we haven't had lawnmowers out for three months where I live, so it's nice to be in summer again. Uh, house is a, and again, you, you might add to that. If I, if I, if I was if I had written this seconds ago, I could edit it right now. I'd say house slash simple slash organic. Different terms that describe a similar thing. Um, and again, this is, this is how much of China is being reached for the gospel. Now, is it found in the West, in the UK, in, yeah, in, in Australia, in, in Canada, the United States? Yeah. Uh, again, this is part of what I'll be teaching on um, in that Oxford class is I'll be laying out some of these alternative ecclesial communities. Now, it's not huge, it's not huge, but it's growing. I would encourage you, if you, uh, there's several books that might be helpful for you. I would say uh, Neil Cole's book, Organic Church, is uh, my personal favorite. He's Brethren. I think there's a pretty good Brethren contingent in Australia. He's Grace Brethren, which is a, a, a part of the Brethren. Um, you can actually see in the house church people some Brethren-like tendencies, uh, but... Um, in the kind of the charismatic vein, Tony and Felicity Dale have written a book called Simply Church. Um, uh, Wolfgang Simpson is a well-known uh, European who's written some on this. By the way, uh, to go back to the missional incarnational, you might also find the writings of uh, Andrew Jones, Tall Skinny Kiwi. Some of you would uh, recognize that name uh, in that category. So others in the house church category. Um, here's what I would say. I think if we're going to reach... Um, some communities, particularly high-rise communities. Now, now some of your high-rise communities in Australia are built around old churches, so there's opportunity within those old churches. So many of those old churches are dying or have stopped preaching the gospel. Um, what we have found is, is and I can give you examples uh, from London, from Toronto, Vancouver, L.A. Um, what we have found is, is that these kinds of churches are beginning to bubble up in places where there's not space to afford uh, or what we also find more broadly where there's pressure for people to meet secretly. That's not, of course, the case in most of the West, but, but the economic pressure is forcing some and these house churches are forming in networks and that becomes a more common practice. Now, I'm guessing I'm talking here about things that are unfamiliar. Maybe that's the wrong term. Less common because it's less common among a group like Geneva Push. I could be wrong. Uh, do, do, do any of you have any experience having been in that sort of house church milieu and that kind of ministry? Anybody have some? Mikey, okay, all right, good. I, I, I'm, could, could I ask you just to share a bit and, about it? Would you, would you mind just taking a second? Just, just, and you can, well, now the lawnmower's on, isn't it? Uh, she's going to go turn, see if we can turn it off. But just project for us, Mikey, and tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, where was it? What was involved? Was it a healthy environment? Uh, it was hard to say healthy. Okay, yeah. 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 He said it was a lot of de-church and anti-church Christians, and that's not dissimilar to the way it is. He's going back to turn on. That's not dissimilar to the way it is in much of the West. What I've said in the United States, much of the house church movement is the angry white children of evangelical megachurches. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there are some alternative models I like. Go ahead. They'd um, speak against preaching in church ah. and then run plenary sessions where they'd Preach well, they bring preachers, ironically, ironically. Um, and a lot of like cutting away church language, but yeah. then introducing a whole lot of new language of their own. Isn't that funny? Yeah. yeah. So that that was some of the stuff. Almost, 
Uh, so that's that's the one I've had the most contact with, more affected by the yeah. Frost Hirsch sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But also in Tasmania, we do have pockets of more the old school, you know, home birth, home school, home Oh, church. yeah. You know, they churn their own butter, making their own S- clothes. Sort of yeah, that's yeah. Kind of storing yeah. food and firearms in the basement, waiting for the end to come. I yep. love them. Um, do you know, uh, Mikey, of any, like I could identify healthy expressions of house church that are not anti-church, anti-this. Do you, would you see, you see many in Australia? Because I can identify them in every place except Australia. Uh, the ones we see tend to be more bigged up small groups yeah. with weekly or monthly gatherings on a Sunday. But yeah. then kind of a hybrid kind of approach? A hybrid model, okay. yeah. Some of those are working really well. But ones that are just isolated home churches, are in some regional areas where yeah. the in that more old school model, kind of yeah. Jesus movement type leaders yeah. who are still singing kind of Maranatha songs and... That kind of thing. Some of them are, are go, all right. They go strong. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. make fun of the Maranatha song. That's my generation. Um, so I felt a little bit majesty. Anyway, um, so I'd be interested. You know, I would consider you much more of an expert. All of you, I would consider more of an expert than me. We're, we haven't yet launched the research project. Stay, stay with the, keep with the mic for one more second. Um, my thesis would be, Mikey, yeah. that, the UK, the, that what we see in the UK more so, probably most so with the alternative ecclesial communities in the UK, that in the most dense urban settings and then in rural settings without the capacity to support full-time pastors and clergy, that those will be the places where healthy house church, simple church, organic church models will emerge. Totally off base, or do you think there's, there's, there's some truth to that? I don't know about the dense urban. Sounds okay. good. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I think we, we, we've seen it. Um, and again, you know, Australia is so um, urbanized Matter of fact, it's, as you know, more urbanized than, than most of the Western context. Um, so, so, so emerging models. Now, there are critiques you can make of all of those. Um, but, and we'll do that. I want to actually engage in some of that. Um, contemporary church planning is sort of, um, in a sense, the standard approach that most of us are using now. And I probably don't need to describe that much, but let me take a moment to do that, just in case. Um, typically, it looks like this. As a matter of fact, I, I sort of draw this as a pipeline. I don't think I have anything to draw on, so no, I won't. Um, so, so it begins with a, a uh, typically a church planter, and then some small groups are gathered, and those small groups begin to multiply to maybe two or three small groups. And then there's some informal monthly gatherings, and then those monthly gatherings, and this is typically six months in, those monthly gatherings tend to become more formal, maybe like a preview service. Come see what we're doing. People, they bring their guests, they bring others, but it's still monthly. People are either engaged in their own churches or small groups. And then it finally leads to that, that public Sunday morning gathering, typically Sunday morning, not exclusively. And then from there, the small groups continue to expand, the church begins to grow, hopefully it multiplies along the way. Um, I will tell you what's ironic is, is that's, that's not how people did it in 1960. It's kind of interesting. This is, this is a, a factor of our, of our age. That's not how people have planted churches for 19 centuries. Um, but we have begun, it's kind of become standard in the format and the approach that's used. But what's interesting is, is we don't actually, we often, since that's what most of us do, it's what I've done six times, it's easier for me to critique the missional incarnational model and the house church model, its strengths and weaknesses, than it is to critique the model where I, where I thrive um, and where I live. Uh, lastly is there are still churches, less so, but still a common uh, method. The first two are growing. The third one is pretty standard. The fourth one 
probably is a second to contemporary church planning, is there are still a lot of churches, particularly among ethnic communities, among language communities, that are planted along a denominational or program-based model. In other words, you, you start, you have Sunday school, you have church, you have Wednesday night, you have some sort of, they can be called different things in different denominational traditions, but you have Royal Rangers or whatever else it is on this, this day or that day. Uh, those tend to be more common both uh, among ethnic groups but also among in poorer communities that immediately kind of um, feel better at home in a structured environment in a program-based church plant. Now, um, to say, and I need to uh, give you an opportunity to to discuss and ask questions, and so let, let, let me do that. Let me quickly go back to um, to where we were, none of these things here, uh, to where we were here, um, and that is... Um, We've really focused in on, on four and five. And the reason, again, remember my specific assignment is to deal with models. And, and what I tried to do is to talk about the universals and then hopefully persuade you that there's some flexibility in our missiology and our ecclesiology, as long as we have certain factors that are tied into both of them because Jesus has sent us to people. And then to discuss two more common emerging ones, one most common and then ultimately uh, probably a traditional one that flows out of that. So here's what I want to encourage you to consider. I think um, that in the future, as what we're going to find is, is that there's a common theological core that um, kind of binds us together as any movement or denomination may be, or Geneva Push or the network may be. And then there's... um, different missiological expressions. Now, some of you seem to be particularly familiar with Acts 29. As some of you know, I was on the board of Acts 29, helped to form it and to shape it. Um, um, you know, I'll be teaching at Mars Hill in February, so I mean, certainly have those uh, friendships. One of the things that uh, Acts 29 had to figure out um, very early on Acts 29, it was kind of fascinating. It didn't, it, it was, it, it, about the size of this room when I started first doing the um, annual retreats. Uh, and each of us around the board would sort of speak. And it looked, everyone sort of looked the same. Anglo, white, goatee, wearing black, thick rim glasses, blonde highlights in the hair because we were all individuals, didn't want to be squeezed into a mold by society. Um, and Acts 29 doesn't look like that much anymore. Um, it's kind of changed over time. And one of the challenges was, was there space with people who held the common theology but planted like a Mark Driscoll? Matt Chandler didn't plant his church, so not the same applicable. But was there also someone who planted um, like uh, Jeff Vanderstelt? And some of you know that name. And so what had to have happened was, these were some of the conversations we had, is we had to get to the place where a common passion for Jesus, our Christology, a deep commitment to missiology would ultimately lead to some diverse ecclesiology that was acceptable because we all came from the same place doctrinally, but they ended up at different places missiologically. Now, I could challenge you, and I, I could do more of that, to talk that that might require some charity in all of our parts. And I will tell you, it wasn't, some of those meetings weren't so easy. Because one of the things that you'll find is people who 
People who choose to plant churches outside of the norm tend to be critical of the norm. And so, so even Mikey mentioned it. So, so you know, I, I love many house church people, and I love their passion. Um, but, you know, I plant a church that meets in a movie theater. We have two locations. Um, we, we are everything that they think you shouldn't be. So am I offended by that? No, no. I, I think that they're, they're evangelizing places in East Nashville where my church would not successfully reach partly because they're pointing at people like me and saying, no, we don't want to be like that. We want to be authentic and in the community and, 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 and never, we would never want to have a building. We want to multiply and reach people. And I would sit back and say, oh, you're not going to say that in 10 years, but I still love you. Um, and so what you'll find is sometimes the passion of people in a movement make them often um, point fingers at other movements. And here's what I would say. I don't mind if you're pointing fingers saying they're doing it wrong as long as you're doing it. You know what I'm saying? So you're reaching people, you're planting churches. You want to critique me, you want to critique others, that's fine as long as you're reaching people and planting churches. So let's have a little bit of a dialogue, conversation, questions, whatever you want to talk about or even opine into for the next few minutes about what we've talked about here. We've got a couple of people hands already, but I think I need a mic. I think we're going to do a roving mic maybe, or are we? I don't care either way, but... Yep, someone's moving. Um, I saw you go out and try to get the lawnmower thing, but no success, huh? That's no, no. It does smell good. It does have a nice, a nice smell. Nothing better than a little grass smell. Is that legal here? No, yes. It's sort of like, no, it's not legal. All right, I get those. Um, you want to start back there? Go ahead. Yeah, good idea. Um, I, I guess one of the questions that we're wrestling with here in Australia is uh, what does preach the word yeah. look like because that, that, that's what what missiological expression of that is appropriate and what is just trying to say it's something that's not that is the question um who's next who's got another question here i don't mind um i would say that most of people who have a model of preaching is more based upon a Western academic model than a biblical model present in Scripture. Um, now, full disclosure, I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, right? So that's the model that I think is best, and I preach expositorily um, for that reason. I want to, I believe the Word of God as inerrant, uh, that every uh, word matters, every, every phrase needs to be interpreted and explained. Um, but here's what I would say. The way that I preach on Sunday morning is certainly not the way that people preached in the early church. Now, there have been whole books written on preaching in the early church. They're worth pursuing and they're worth, uh, they're worth reading. Here's what I think is the universal biblical standard. Matter of fact, first of all, mo- many of the times when it says to preach in the New Testament, it's talking about the proclamation of the gospel and evangelism. That's what it's talking about a lot of the time. But I do think that there's very clear teaching on more than one occasion that one of the marks of the biblical church is the ongoing teaching and preaching of God's word. Now, some people want to make a major distinction between teaching and preaching. I think it's hard exegetically to make a major distinction between the two. But here's what I think we can say, that there was a normative practice in the early church that the scriptures were read and explained. Now, um, if if you want to be in a house church... And by the way, the public reading of Scripture, I think, is a normative command as well. We don't often do that. I think that really is a normative command. So if you're going to be in a house church, I think with 15 people, you can read and explain the Scriptures. And I think that meets the qualifications for the marks of a biblical church. 
Now, some would say, well, you need more and more training to do that rightly and well, and that very well may be true. It does make a hard case for us in the first century, though, to then preclude and say, well, they weren't preaching because they didn't have the Western academic tools. Matter of fact, they didn't, have the, they didn't have the ability to diagram sentences, which are fundamental to what we do. They didn't need to because those were the sentences which they would read and they would hear. And so what I would say, and the belief that I have as a normative practice and a mark of a biblical church is biblical preaching and teaching, I tend to put those together, where the Word of God is read and the Word of God is explained on a consistent basis so they could both be fruitful for the congregation and make it faithfully adhere to the Word of God. Um, So that means that there are really not 70 million Christians in China who aren't in churches because they're in house churches that don't preach the way that I preach. So I'm not willing to say, and I think by the way you're asking the question, I don't think you're willing to say, that because they don't preach the way I preach, they would not therefore meet the marks of a biblical church. Um, so now again, people want to parse that further, and I get that, right? So we want to say it's, you know, expository preaching, is it verse by verse expository preaching? But I think the normative command that even in a preliterate oral culture, which is what most of the cultures were in that day, and million, billions of people in the world are today, you can still engage in biblical preaching and teaching in a local church by reading the scriptures and explaining the scriptures to the hearers. That's what I think is the appropriate, at the minimum standard of what must be in a church in all times and all places. Did that answer your question? You want to follow up? Yeah, good. You want to follow up, disagree, agree more? I love it. Let's do it. Come on. Come on. Get up here. Come on. You want to disagree with me? Come on. You're bigger than me. That's all right. Um, Okay, so what about a discussion? Um, So, Dialogical read and, read and explain as opposed to let's sit around and have a discussion because that's the language we hear. Yeah, I love the way you said let's yeah. sit around and have a discussion. Well, it's the around, Can't tell what you think. Uh, <laughs> I'm depends upon what the discussion is. You know, if the discussion is, is, you know, let's go around the circle, read a Bible verse and say, well, what do you think this means? And what do you think this means? I mean, the verse means something. Uh, so, no, I do think biblical teaching um, now, again, I don't have difficulty with dialogue, but I think monologue generally needs to precede dialogue, or else there's not instruction teaching. Now, now we do know that in the synagogue system, this was, this was a discussion. I mean, there were people who would get up, and that's why Paul writes some of those things in, in 1 Corinthians about, you know, don't just jump up and talk about these things in the middle of church. Um, so, so, but what I would say is the instruction of God's word through preaching and teaching is generally going to be monological at some point because otherwise, why are pastors specifically said to be able to teach in 1 Timothy chapter 3? So there's teaching that goes on, but in, are you, in a culture that's, that's dialogical, that wants to have a conversation about it, I think that's awesome, and I don't have a difficulty in that at all. But I don't think I would want to undermine what I see as the teaching of God's word, which somebody has generally prepared, it's read, and then then was prepared to explain the teaching of God's word. Do you agree or disagree? Let's dialogue a little bit. Well, ironically, we're dialoguing about the, we're sitting around dialoguing. Go ahead. What do you think? Uh, th- yeah, that's, that, that answers a lot of it. But what, but what, do, you, but what do you think? What, what do I think? Yeah. I, I, I would agree with you in that, with, with that monological aspect. Yeah. That it carries a certain authority of, uh, that goes with gifting. It's good. Um, and so without that monologue, I'd find it hard to say that that is genuine teaching. Yeah, I think I think that's right, um, and I think I, I think that that would be a universal constant. That even in cultures that are very dialogical and communal, there's still going to be um, 
a recognition in Scripture that this is just, it's normative that the Word of God is explained. Uh, we would say more technically exposited, you know. So, 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 so I, 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 so I would say is house church can meet that mark. Um, and, but let's not even think of a house, let's not think of a house church in Tasmania. Let's think of a, house, of a church in Kenya meeting under a boma that they've gathered together in the village among the Maasai. I think that they would do that very thing that we described. Thus, it's a, it's a biblical command that can be universally applied. Must be universally applied, I think. Good. Somebody else with a question or a comment. And thanks for letting me kind of get your thoughts, too, because I want to be, I'm trying to be, ironically, I want to dialogue a little more than just, just answer your questions. Go ahead. And what's Blacktown, by the way? Blacktown, we're in Blacktown. So, okay, this is Blacktown? And so I love that you have a shirt that I love Blacktown. That's yeah, very... I used to work at a church at the other end of Blacktown. Oh, cool. Now I'm at the other end of it. So, yeah. Um, question or comment? Uh, question. So, uh, three, three years ago, four years ago, whatever, I moved into this area, had the, the intention of doing this cycle that you've got up here. Uh, but the longer that I've lived there, the more that I'm convinced that actually the local resources and the people, and Al Stewart talks about uh, planning in Australia like plowing concrete. I say say the word again. Plowing concrete. Plow and conquering? No, plowing concrete. Plowing conquering. Yeah, concrete. Okay. Concrete. concrete. Asphalt. Sorry, I don't speak will. English yeah, well. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah, no, that's all right. Plowing I don't speak concrete. well. Plowing concrete. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's all good. Uh, uh, and that's what it's like. It's a very difficult area, yeah. maybe one of the toughest areas in Sydney. And I guess what I'm thinking is, all right, I want to do that, but how do I do that with... Uh, a real vacuum in terms of uh, local leadership, in terms of uh, money and resources and things like that. How do I rethink the model that I've got so it works in an area where uh, where people haven't got initiative or education or there's been a very there's, there's a poor history of gospel ministry, I guess. So you're talking about no, to keep the mic for a second. So you're talking about you said they had a poor history. Are we talking about? Poor understanding of the gospel, thus hard soil, or also poor socioeconomically? Uh, all of the above. All so the, above. The, the, the suburb that I'm in is surrounded by pretty much the most difficult suburbs in Mount Druitt. Yeah. Um, we've got something going, but even where we are, it's very hard work. Yeah. Those surrounding suburbs, harder still, but they're the ones that probably need Jesus more than anything. I think our area is the key to entry into those suburbs, but at the same time I'm thinking down the track... You know, how, do we, how am I going to multiply churches? Yeah. I don't know if that's going to work. Do you know what I mean? So the reason that you can't is because it's hard soil, takes a long time to gather people. Yep. And the financial resources necessary would be hard to sustain over that long term. It's, it's not just the financial resources. It's the, the people resources. So even the Christians there are very tired, yeah. worn out. Yeah. Yeah, it's that sort of difficulty, I guess. Yeah. yeah um, what well, we would say historically, um, Japan, for example. Um, and there are fields that would be harder, though I agree with you, this is a hard field. Perhaps in the Western world, um, among the major, larger countries, would certainly be the hardest. Um, what I would say is two things. One, we may need to scale our model differently so that our finances are perceived and engaged differently. So this may be where, again, the plumber who's going to live there and over 10 years going to plant a church that is not dependent upon outside support but has been trained by vocationally, one of those Roland Allen Anglican pastors who are going to do that, 
that would make sense to me. The second thing is, I think we're probably going to need to think in terms, in some places, and perhaps where you're saying, we need to think less like church planters and more like missionaries. Um, and that's a shift that we have to be very careful about because every church planner would then say, man, it's taking me too long. Treat me like a missionary so I can be funded for 27 years in this one place. Um, and it's just not viable. You can't do that. But there are some places where ultimately we're going to have to recognize it's going to require a commitment of a decade or more to plant a viable church. And we have to just treat that situation differently. The problem is, <clears throat> again, sometimes it's just the planner is not, now again, this is not about you because I have no idea who you are. I just yeah. love your shirt. So what I would say is that the question, therefore, we have to ask is, is this truly such an unreached mission field we need to treat it as a mission field with a greater longevity and a different approach? Or do we need to demonetize the approach so that we don't be forced to a rapidity of self-supporting that can't happen anywhere in that context? It's probably got to be one or the other. Somebody else. And make sure we're good on time. Well, I guess some, you guys are tracking time, right? Someone in charge here, not me. Um, back here. And let me just say, I do notice that it's past 530 as well. I'm going to go until you tell me to stop because I got nowhere else to be. <coughs> Great. I'll get mine in you're, then. You're the one with the cute baby. Yes, Amanda. I am. Sorry, uh, Annie. 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 Okay, sorry. Yeah. had an A. Yeah, uh, and good. just beautiful baby. All right, go ahead. This is Good so work long. on your, your wife's part, I know, I know, because yeah, yeah. I'm looking at you. Uh, <laughs> and be, be thankful your wife wears glasses is all I can say right now for you personally, because clearly she loves you in spite of, but anyway. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> no, he's done. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask, um, how do you see these models playing out in places where there's more cultural diversity? So I'm thinking particularly uh, some, some of the inner city locations, um, because uh, as your ecclesiology, if you're saying ecclesiology is going to reflect the culture based on your mission, then when you've got more diversity of age, language, ethnicity, everything, yeah, I, th I, I think that that's a great opportunity for the diversity of milieu of approaches and reaching people. And I think this is where churches that are using sort of the model maybe we're most familiar with, maybe it's that, you know, that Anglican church that's been there for 100 years can also say, you know, man, we'd love to have a, a Hmong congregation. That's a people group from Southeast Asia. We'd love to have a Hmong congregation here that's, 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 that's become part and rooted in the community differently, that's functioning differently. We'd love to be a base for house church networks to meet together for a monthly gathering that, that uh, you know, Mikey sort of referenced to, that maybe you can gather together here. And so, so one church can become a ministry village that, that helps with different models because those models require space differently. So we see that now. We see that. Um, when I spoke at the uh, Redeemer Church Planning Center in New York City, um, uh, and Tim Keller, of course, the pastor there, I loved the, the fact that they were doing that very thing, that there were, there were old churches that have been around for centuries that, um, that were preaching the gospel and then allowing other churches with different models to use their facilities because they, there weren't, they weren't Sunday morning 11 o'clock gatherings in the same way. So I think you're going to find... Diversity of people breeds, rightly so, diversity of ecclesiology. Again, same biblical marks in all, but diverse expressions because the missiology has led us to diverse expressions of ecclesiology. And I love that. I love, um, I love the body of Christ. I love the church. And so I love to just see what God is doing. And I think if we could, if we could be as charitable, I think, like, like a Keller is, when you train, um, it's kind of fascinating. They have their church planners, which is sort of be like most of us theologically. Uh, but then they have this 
broad evangelical gathering with people or house church people are there and I want to plant a mega church people are there and they don't last but uh but you know because it's Manhattan where are you going to plant another mega church so um so that so I, I think ultimately it leads to a greater sense of diversity and, and I like that I like, as long as again as long as we share some theological commonalities with mythological diversity good where do I go from here wherever she's got the mic there you go um quick question just no, pro- I really, uh, none of my questions are quick questions. I apologize <laughs> for that. Um, I just want to probe a bit on the bivocational kind of stuff. Can you just reflect maybe from a research kind of perspective uh, as to is there a link between viability and bivocational stuff? Uh, that no, not statistically. Um, matter of fact, it... It may be you have greater viability if you're bivocational. Um, I didn't have, our sample didn't go long enough sure. to see that. But let me just say that there is a link between vocational ministry and growth. Uh, churches grow faster when they have full-time church planters, um, but they don't, they don't survive more. In other words, if you're not a church planter and you're full-time, you're going to fail. If you're not a church planter and you're part-time, you're going to fail. If you're a church planter and you're full-time, you're going to succeed. If you're part-time, you're going to succeed the rapidity of growth is impacted by the full-time nature of the planter. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay. And that's, that's some in viral churches as well. Uh, right here? You got the mic? Yeah. In Australia, it's, uh, it's culturally weird to attend church regularly. Yeah. I'm just thinking about some of these models. Um, they are even weirder than the weird people who go to church. Yeah. Is there an element in which we have to be careful that a certain model is potentially too socially radical, um, that it won't really fly with people in that... I'm thinking specifically of, of talking to people who've been in house churches yeah. uh, and the, you know, the, the, the idea was, oh, let's all spend all our time with each other all the time. Yeah. And some people really freaked out, you know, kind yeah. of controlling my life. Um, yeah. Yeah, first let me say that there are a lot of weird people in house churches. Let me just say that to get it out of the way. Um, but there are a lot of house churches that aren't filled with weird people. And what I would say is if you um, walk in some neighborhoods in London, house church fits in really well among them. What would be really weird to them is to go to one of those buildings with steps in the front. And so what I would say is the Again, it has to do with Jesus, Christology, missiology. If I'm sent into a community that we used to call postmodern, but now we're post calling it postmodern. Um, but if I go into a community that's, that's multi-generations away from any Christian commitment of what a building would be to that I would go to, um, that's already having spiritual conversations. I may already be in meetings with people having spiritual conversations. My dad, he's not a Christian. He attends a group of people who have spiritual conversations on a regular basis. They call it a seeker group, oddly enough, though it really isn't anything related to, like, seeking the gospel. Uh, my dad's not crazy. I mean, he sounds a little kooky the way I described it right there. But he's a you know, very successful businessman, lives on a beach in Florida. He does very well. Um, so for my dad, that might not be that odd. So I guess it depends really on where you are. And when you go to some of these high-rises, the whole community is already there. Um, their are doctors there, their, their, their grocery store is there, their, everything is, is self-contained. What an opportunity for someone 
to say, what, who is Jesus, what has he called us to do, how do I engage these people by planting a church in that community? There's already 2,000 people living in this small couple of buildings, plant a church there. Um, I think we're going to see more and more of that. We're already seeing more and more of it. Again, London is a great example of we have a lot of these. Ch- and, and they're often, sometimes they're connected, sometimes they're freestanding, sometimes they're like, well, not dissimilar to what I preached at Sunday um, at, uh, at uh, York Street. They had a campus that was sort of down on that wharf that I don't remember the name of. Um, well, that might be a campus that meets in a high-rise building that people are already connected in community with one another. So, yeah, it's going to be weird to a lot of people, and that's why we need churches like yours and mine. But it's not going to be weird to a lot of people, too. Who are you going to go to next? That was going to be it. Okay. It's your church, Ray, so you get to have one more. So someone give him a microphone, and then we'll let Ray be last. Oh, okay. Well, you just got ready to shout it. Thank you. It does, it does exist around the world, but less so in the West. Um, but, it, but that's the tricky. That's the tricky part. The people doing the best job in that are world impact, not world vision. They're, they're great too, but world impact is planting churches among the West's urban poor. So that's sort of what they do. They have missionaries around the globe. Um, it's not a widely known organization. They're actually looking for a new president right now. Um, so they do a really good job. But basically, um, there are different models. There's not one model. Sometimes the model is kind of a yoke fellow relationship with a church where, where, where someone has a long-term commitment to be in that place in a way that doesn't produce uh, cultural dependency. Um, to me, the best way is to raise up leaders uh, from the harvest. Um, again, because I, I planted among the poorest of the poor in my country. Um, and now that church is pastored by uh, two generations of, well, it was one, two generations is the wrong term. But the second pastor now is actually a pastor that I led to the Lord who um, was a drug dealer. And so bivocational pastor when I left was a uh, truck driver and uh, but went through, you know, external training that we had, things of that sort. So I think that's the best scenario is an indigenous church rooted in and among people. But one of the things we find um, among the urban poor is that if you have leadership capability, you get out of there. And so you have this cycle. So you have to find some people who are willing to connect, to stay, to have long-term ministry opportunities. Um, this is unique in the history because of the social welfare net that we have all created in the West, Australia, United States, et cetera, et cetera. This is a unique cultural situation that we haven't faced before. Um, the, the poor in Brazil, um, you know, favelas in Brazil, there are churches planted there, just a different scenario. And so I think it also requires some missiological discernment that we've created a culture of dependence. We want to create less dependence, but we may also be dependent on these kind of relationships to actually get us to there. It's a unique situation that we have created in the Western, uh, Western world that, I don't, uh, that we're still wrestling through. Hey, thank you so much again for the opportunity to share with you. Um, looking forward. It's going to be a great time tonight. We have dinner, I think, now. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, pray for our dinner, I think. But I'm going to pray for it anyway, regardless of they want me to. And, um, and then tomorrow, we, uh, tonight, excuse me, we'll gather together here, Andrew. Um, can you open God's word? Pray with me. Father, thank you for these men and women who desire and are serving you. Father, I pray that you might continue to remind us to think biblically, not, not, well, I saw this bad experience or I have this opinion, but allow our opinions and our missiology and ultimately our ecclesiology to be shaped by Scripture and to uh, be doggedly determined 
to uh, not get distracted from the marks of a biblical church and to be doggedly determined to not, um, not allow our own biases, the church we've planted in our head, to guide us more than the church that's rooted and described in the scripture. So guide us for your name's sake, and thank you for the privilege we have to serve you. Father, I pray you bless our food, our fellowship, the rest of our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.